When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we celebrate being human for its own sake and retrieve some of the painstakingly evolved social mechanisms for establishing rapport, solidarity, and the collective power that comes along with them. You are not alone. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, professor and activist Ananya Roy. How we build alliance and solidarity matters. It requires, as with all relationships, work on an everyday basis. Roy will be showing us how the fight for global social justice often begins at home. Well, I'm finally winding down off the team human tour. I had a great time in London. I did a, a, a terrific event with George Monbiot at the British Library, thanks to Virtual Futures. And you can find that online at Virtual Futures, I think. And I just did Russell Brand's podcast, Under the Skin, which was both <laughs> an under-the-skin and out-of-body experience. I encourage you to listen to that uh, bizarre little mind meld. It was great fun, and we got to some interesting places. I have a last few events coming up and doing uh, something in LA in April at Newhouse that you're all welcome to. And I'm doing a one night only open classroom at the 92nd Street Y in New York on May 21st. And I'm doing a few other events you can find out about at teamhuman.fm. There's also a growing number of people interested in creating their own Team Human gatherings wherever they live. And I welcome people to do that if using the Team Human name helps you identify yourselves or find the others. We'll try to post some best strategies culled from successful groups and create a forum for group organizers to share their experiences with one another. 
Also, for those interested in parsing or sharing or finding the citations and references in my monologues, go to medium.com. I've been profoundly influenced by the people I've been meeting on the tour as well. Uh, I'm not that I'm ready to take back what I've been saying over these last six weeks, but I feel like I'm uh, making a shift in emphasis. You know, I've been arguing that digital technology has been uh, preventing us from engaging with one another, that it's undermining us as a team. And while that's true, I don't think that's unique to digital technology. I think that's been really the ethos of the industrial age from the beginning. You know, we developed industrial age technologies and the weaving looms and factory floors and assembly lines under the false premise that these things are more efficient. You know, they're really not more efficient. They don't allow us to produce things better or faster. What they do is allow us to produce things with less labor or less skilled labor involvement and allow us to externalize the waste and the pollution and the pain and the problems to someone else. So they make things cheaper to produce in the short term for the person who owns the company, but more expensive for everybody else. So you look at... Um, as I've spoken about before, you know, mass production allowed us to hire a less skilled worker, say, the less skilled Indian laborer at weaving carpets, that now that they had the loom, which was sent over by Queen Victoria, the mechanical loom, you could hire an unskilled laborer to use the mechanical loom rather than a skilled laborer to use a regular loom. And all that meant was you could hire more workers cheaply and really cut Indians out of the value chain, out of the value equation and keep more value for yourself. You know, and even today we have, you know, Chinese laborers, they they finish smartphones by uh, wiping this chemical on that removes their fingerprints. And that's because we have this whole aesthetic of industrial production that there's no human beings involved. So the use of industrial age technologies really disconnected human workers from the value they were creating. But what it did was ended up uh, bringing us really random goods. You know, the, the example I love to use is the Quaker Oats. You know, originally we got our oats from an oat seller. We had a human relationship with that person. And then oats start coming from 2,000 miles away in a plain brown box. They needed in order to support mass production of oats, they needed mass marketing. They needed the brand image of the Quaker so that we would have something like a human relationship with that product. But in order to get us to like the Quaker on the box, they needed mass media to present us with these brand mythologies through radio and through television. So mass production required mass marketing, mass marketing required mass media, and each of these were really about disconnecting people from one another, either disconnecting uh, uh, workers from their value, but more importantly, disconnecting the, the worker or producer from the consumer 
and then later with television and radio, us consumers from one another, right? If we have good relationships with each other, then we're not good targets for advertising. <laughs> Only when we're totally alone and isolated, usually by television, do we start to aspire to the products and the, the worlds that those products seem to present to us. So when I look at digital technology and surveillance capitalism and the way that digital technologies isolate us from one another or have us join affinity groups rather than genuine social groups or send us down our own reality tunnels or our own filter bubbles, that's really just an extension of television and radio. Yes, it's, it's amplified by digital tools, but it's not truly digital. Facebook's not truly digital in that sense. Like Netflix, Instagram, or Amazon Prime, it's really just television and the television ethos running on a digital platform. The psychosocial effects are really the same as television. It disconnects people from one another. It desocializes our world. But where truly digital manipulation surfaces is really in its impact on us as individuals, as humans. Once the algorithms, you know, once they've grasped us by the brainstem, they're no longer working to disconnect us from one another, but from ourselves. They're not alienating us from the value we're creating, but from our intrinsic value as conscious living beings. They're disconnecting us from our souls, or if you're too atheist for that, they're disconnecting us from our soul in the James Brown sense. You know, and what does that look like? Well, that's the landscape where we understand our worth solely through metrics, through friends, likes, and retweets, yes, but also through our utility value as workers, as earners, rather than our essential value and our dignity as human beings. This is the ethos that encourages us to give school children iPads and Chromebooks instead of giving their teachers more autonomy or contact hours with pupils. This is how the chief scientist at Google comes to see artificial intelligence as our evolutionary future. It's the disorientation that we're feeling right now at this weird moment when news stories and urgent issues are presented to us in ways that trigger these fight-or-flight reactions and then get replaced by another or another and another before we can achieve coherence. It's the way algorithms work to iron out our unpredictability or get us to behave more consistently with our consumer profiles. It's everything from, from slot machine algorithms embedded in our news feeds to induce addictive behavior to the auto-tune in our pop music that quantizes the once human, weird, strange, wonderful voice. Yes, and the, the easiest way back, definitely, I still believe, is to reconnect with others, with other people. Being human is a team sport, and we can recalibrate most easily by simply looking into someone else's eyes, holding a hand, or breathing together. But we're no longer living the story about how mass media and technologies disconnect people from one another. No, it's more than that. It's the way technology is being used to disconnect us from ourselves. I'm honored today to bring you professor, scholar, and activist Ananya Roy. She's been working with Occupy Wall Street's Michael White on a course 
about housing inequality through the Activist Graduate School and is a professor of urban planning and social welfare at UCLA, where she's also the director of the Institute on Inequality and Democracy. I know her best for her book, Poverty Capital, Microfinance and the Making of Development, which unearthed for me the counter-revolutionary agenda embedded in so many of the so-called development programs. She looks at global poverty from a truly global perspective, which sometimes means the inequality in our own backyards and highway underpasses. Now, just so much I would love to talk to you about, and I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I mean, I guess you hear this all. I'm, I'm deeply thrilled and inspired by your work and your approach and the way you articulate things that. Uh, especially about about neoliberalism and the underlying assumptions that we need to challenge. Um, so I could I could talk about almost anything with you and feel I think enlightened. But I'm going to try to be specific here and to put on some of my some of my uh, rigorous hat. I'm interested, I guess, really for for our audience and for some grounding and context. If you could tell us a little bit of the story about how a Nice girl growing up in Calcutta becomes a, a UCLA social justice uh, professor. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on Team Human. I don't know if I was ever a nice girl, but uh, <laughs> I was always a disobedient girl. So growing up in Kolkata, obviously it is a city with quite visible forms of poverty and inequality. And that um, encounter, if you will, as a middle-class high school student in that city very much shaped my interests in the study of cities, but also in the ways in which cities manifest social inequality. Those interests led me to a small women's college in Oakland, California, Mills College, where I did my undergraduate degree. And when I signed up for that education at Mills College, I don't think I fully realized the city that was then going to become home, which is Oakland, California, which in mm. its own ways is a stark manifestation of racialized inequality. So my interest in urban inequality and poverty deepened during those four years in Oakland and then carried over into graduate education at UC Berkeley. So there is very much a connecting thread across these cities that I have had the opportunity to call home and an interest also in thinking about the ways in which our lives are lived quite literally in these spaces, but also the ways in which by changing space and acting in space, we can then act upon poverty and inequality. I guess one of the repeating themes in your work has to do with the way perhaps we in, in America, for many of us whose only kind of direct experience of poverty is through media, you know, many Americans look at poverty is something that really, well, it's happening in India and Africa and the global South. And we think of, you know, the the babies in Biafra and the flies on their faces and, oh my gosh, how, how terrible it is. And we don't think of it as something happening here. 
I remember in the in the late 80s, I went to uh, Soweto in South Africa. And my, my mom was all worried. Oh, you're going to go there and they're going to come and kill you and you're going to see such horrible things. And when I went to Soweto and talked with the, the people, you know, living there, they were more concerned about black, young black people in America who they thought were so distant. They knew about gangster rap. And they said, my God, how terrible it must be to still live in the country where you were brought over as a slave and to live in this disenfranchised way. And they looked they looked at American, uh, American kids in the ghetto with, uh, uh, they empathized with, with pity. You make two very good points. So I'm, I'm, I'm a scholar of, of cities, but I'm also a scholar of international development, and particularly at UC Berkeley. I had the opportunity to establish and chair a program on global poverty. And one of the key premises of that program was that we had an entire generation of young Americans, millennials, who were so very eager to act upon poverty, to save poor people, save poor communities, but their imagination of poverty saw that as a third world problem, as a problem elsewhere. And that they in particular, as young Americans, somehow had the capacity to solve. So our program at UC Berkeley was a critical intervention in these millennial aspirations. And it was a way of having students think about the two points that you just made. One, to think about poverty here in the United States, in the very heart of wealth and prosperity, but also to think about the ways in which poverty in many other parts of the world is not necessarily associated with political disenfranchisement or disempowerment in the ways in which it is in the United States. And it's been structured in this way in the United States. So quite a bit of my work has been with very poor communities in the global South. And those communities are also spaces of incredible mobilization and political power. And we see the effects of this in the sorts of programs and policies that are then possible in the parts of the world that are often designated as the global south. And quite, you know, one aspect of that is I think as in the North Atlantic, we see increasing inequality and deepening poverty, and we see the impossibility of robust welfare policies in the global south, in many of these countries with large poor populations, we are in fact seeing quite extraordinary programs of human development, social protection, and social assistance. Right. I mean, the, I guess the danger would be for uh, um, for us to say, "Oh, well." So we don't have to worry about anybody over there. We can just, you know, we can just deal with the poverty at home. I mean, is that, and I guess for for the like the young activists that I'm teaching, if I were to re-steer them towards, well, you know, because we're in Queens, well, look at Queens, look at Brownsville, look at um, the places where we have where we have poverty, and and focus there instead of you know, these, uh, instead of other places, there's, there's a risk of a kind of uh, insularity that goes along with that, or not being aware of the way that America is externalizing its own pollution and slavery to other parts of the world. 
Well, that's precisely it, that what we need is an interconnected relational thinking. And the movements that inspire me, whether it be the Black Panther movement from the 60s, or be it sort of radical social movements in a city like Los Angeles today, have those interconnected relational imaginations. So they are able to see how poverty in South Central Los Angeles and the forms of militarized policing that respond to that poverty are closely tied to the forms of racialized poverty and militarized policing that we might see in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro. And these movements connect these sites. And so I would very much like my students to think in those ways. And one thing to consider is that, of course, the many forms of poverty and inequality that we see in other parts of the world have a direct connection to forms of extraction and exploitation that are centered here. That American imperialism is alive and well, and those colonial relationalities then shape both what shows up as impoverishment here, and I'm thinking now about the relationship between the U.S. and Central America, Mm. but also the ways in which U.S. policies have a direct effect on the lives of so many communities around the world. So my students, when they want to solve global poverty, often ask what they should do. And I will often say, well, why don't you um, put some pressure on your elected representatives in Washington, D.C. to begin to dismantle this edifice of agro-subsidies that we have that make it impossible for poor farmers around the world to compete with U.S. agricultural products. And that is a major cause of worldwide poverty. So again, I think there are many sorts of connections, and I think that is one way in which we can think about poverty and inequality in different parts of the world without making it an either-or. Right. I mean, and then when you take an issue like... uh, uh global industrial agriculture and agriculture policy. It gets so complicated because it's all tied together. So, okay, you want World Bank and IMF funding. You can have that if you open your markets to Monsanto and other companies who are going to destroy your topsoil and create dependence on chemicals and, uh, you know, and then the, and then subsistence farming is no longer possible. And We've created uh, a, an entire nation that might now be dependent on uh, one form or another of neoliberalism or global capitalism in order for those people to survive on American bread when they can no longer grow their own. That's right. And so those forms of structural adjustment have devastated communities and countries. And of course, um, both the United States and the European Union have been able to protect themselves from those forms of deregulation, right? That they have maintained these tariff walls and protected large agribusinesses while insisting that other countries deregulate, open up markets. And that uneven playing field, which often is called the free market, is a crucial aspect of the world we live in. And I think as Americans, we have an ethical and political responsibility to address the policies that then produce poverty around the world and, of course, produce poverty here in the United States as well. 
I mean, and then, you know, and that's why it's it's ironic to me that in some of what the current American administration talks about in terms of, you know, or, 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 trade, uh, you know, uh, trade sanctions and and trying to slow uh, certain aspects of international trade. I hear echoes of what we were shouting in the WTO protests in Seattle, but coming from a much more cynical place, I guess. Well, not only from a cynical place, but from a place of uh, chauvinism, of, of sort of a walling of the United States in, in all sorts of ways. But yes, there are those uncanny echoes between right-wing nationalism and sort of uh, left activism. Yes. And even though they might be coming from a scary, strange place, I see almost a glimmer of hope in this, that there, you know what I mean? That there's some sort of a, a common positive relocalization of, of the economy that can result from, from this kind of thinking, if it could be extracted from that kind of, you know, racist nationalism. But that relocalization can take many different forms. And I think the relocalization that we are seeing with the Trump administration is what I like to call crony capitalism. Right. It's a strengthening mm. of a handful of elites who are not even the, in the business of the production of anything other than the production of white supremacy, right? I mean, they're in the, in the business of extraction. So I think their relocalization can take many different forms. And we've seen this even in the global south with import substitution, industrialization, and some of those efforts that who then benefits in the local economy, how the local economy is connected inevitably to global commodity chains, how local economies are connected to one another, can take on quite different meanings and have quite different distributional consequences, depending on um, one's political commitments and, in, in this case, depending on one's ideology. Right. And it seems that the problem is that any effort to help establish any kind of a local resilience or bottom-up value creation gets immediately squashed by these larger systems, no matter what rhetoric they're using. So, you know, and, and I've tried, I'm sure you've more than me, I've spoken to people at the you know International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or the the uh, the, the Davos people, the World Economic Forum, and they all use that term. And it's funny, we're not allowed to use the word third world. We have to say developing world, developing. But for them, as you really very well point out in, in so much of your work, developing is the sort of a subjugation of these economies to the giant neoliberal corporate uh, <laughs> corporate network. But I think also the world of international development and of global trade has shifted in the last decade or so. That while the IMF and WTO and World Bank remain powerful actors, particularly in agenda setting, I also think we've seen the, the political rise of a set of economic powerhouses in the global south, India, China, Brazil, South Africa, these are populist, many of them are populist democracies, um, very, quite successful democracies, despite the rise of right-wing politics in some of these contexts. 
And these economies are not necessarily as closely connected to the structures of these Bretton Woods institutions as was the case, say, 15, 20 years ago. So I do Mm -hmm. think that we are seeing a new geopolitics of development. And in so many parts of the world, the most significant actor in global trade and economic development is China. I don't think um, the United States is fully caught up with that. And I, and I think we've got to now pay close attention to new formations of economic hegemony, new conditionalities, new forms of exploitation and extraction that connect countries in the global south to one another. So in, in the part of the world that I grew up in, India is the big bully in town. India is the dominant power. And sort of the large national programs of, say, urban transformation that the Indian government rolls out, some of which I study, are not being imposed on that country anymore by the World Bank or by WTO conditionalities. These are programs devised by the government of India, and they look quite neoliberal. And when we talk about these sort of... what. Urban transformations. I mean, the urban transformations that I studied were medieval era. (laughs) I looked at medieval Europe and the way that, you know, the commons was enclosed and then the, the, the charter monopolies came along and people couldn't work in their own businesses anymore. They had to go to the city to get a job to work and really sell their time instead of being connected to their value they're creating as labor. Is that analogous to the sort of urban transformations you're talking about happening now in these sort of world-class cities that that are dispossessing and displacing people? I'm chuckling because I wrote a piece several years ago arguing that the European medieval city is an important heuristic device to understand today's urban transformation. So the medieval city remains very relevant for our understandings of dispossession today. So I do think that we are, of course, seeing in many parts of the world quite systematic processes of displacement and dispossession in the process of the making of these world-class cities. And as I've argued in my work, these world-class cities reference one another and often um, mimic one another. And part of that mimicry is an understanding of who is eligible to be in this city, who has rights in the city, who can make claims. And there is, of course, a constant pushing out of poor others, however poor others might be described. But more importantly, I think there is a constant enclosure of land and resources that we might otherwise think of as collective or that we might think of as somewhat decommodified. So these struggles are quite real. I think um, that these struggles can be understood as neoliberalization, but they can also be understood in the long history of global capitalism, and particularly in the North Atlantic, in the long history of racial capitalism. So if we were to think about urban transformations in the United States today, We can say that we are looking, for example, at an evictions epidemic. We are looking at what I've been calling racial banishment. Working class communities of color being pushed out of urban life to the far peripheries. 
And yet these processes, of course, are not new. They are new forms of what are old processes of dispossession and displacement. And there is a way in which these forms of racialization are therefore being remade at the present historical conjuncture. So I'm interested in thinking about the now, the urban now, but I think it's very instructive to think about some of these longer histories that shape contemporary moments of dispossession. Right. And it's so hard for people today. I mean, partly because of the, the, the digital realm that we're living in, where all of our memory is outsourced. It's so hard for people to have some sense of recollection. You know, where have we seen this before? You know, can we do some pattern recognition here? Or do we have to treat every single thing as if this is the first time that these injustices have appeared? And I think that there's an important role of that historicization. I'm not a historian. But I think it's absolutely crucial for us to think historically in order to make change in the present. And this is something that Micah and I discussed quite a bit when we co-taught the Housing Justice Course. Just for the audience, we're talking about Micah White, one of the uh, founders of Occupy, who's the um, really the founder of the activist graduate school that um, you're working in uh, in conjunction with. So Micah spent a few weeks with us at UCLA, and he and I had the opportunity to co-teach this course on housing justice activism. And Micah had this lovely line about history theory strategy, which I like very much. And I'll give you one example of that thinking historically that is very much on my mind as I think about housing justice struggles and gentrification and displacement and other things today. So we have a wonderful scholar at UCLA, Kesu Park who um, is in the Critical Race Studies program in our School of Law. She has a brilliant piece tracing the history of what is a very familiar neoliberal instrument, foreclosures. We all think we know foreclosures. We know what foreclosures have done, both during the subprime crisis and subsequently. What Casey Park shows is that foreclosure as an instrument was invented by settler colonists And it wasn't a direct application of British property law. In fact, British property law did not make possible this sort of expropriation of land as collateral for debt. But it was a uniquely American invention as a way of stealing land from indigenous peoples. Mm. And that historicization for me, is one example of how we can therefore trace the long histories of racial capitalism, but also delegitimize an instrument such as foreclosure and argue, in fact, that it does not have the legitimacy um, and the powers that it claims to have. Well, I mean, the, the pedestrian argument is, oh, the person owes money on their home and they're not paying their mortgage, so the bank takes it over. You know, what's so wrong with that? And what Casey Park is able to show in this wonderful history is how British property law did not allow property, particularly land, to become chattel. That, in fact, the payment of debt never took the form of the confiscation of land because the relationship to land was seen as something that could not be touched, that had to do not only with ownership, but had to do with shelter, had to do with quite literally being on the land. And it is precisely 
because white settler colonists saw indigenous populations or rather framed them as unsettled, as savage, as the racial other, as not understanding the relationship to land, that in fact their land could be made liquid in this way, which of course now has become an instrument of worldwide financialization and dispossession. So for me, again, history theory strategy remains quite important, and the three are tightly linked. Mm. Now, to the to the the well, the billionaire leftist do-gooder, um, the way out of this uh, highly, you know, racialized uh, global segregation and 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 uh, dispossession is things like microfinancing. You know, and as you said, you know, microfinancing is is meant to transform, you know, people out of poverty and into the first rung of entrepreneurial capitalism. So, as you know, um, several years ago, I studied microfinance for quite a few years and wrote a book about it called Poverty Capital. Mm -hmm. And the title of that book indicated the core argument of the book. Uh, where I suggested that microfinance was a form of poverty capitalism or bottom billion capitalism, an effort on the part of institutions such as the World Bank, but also on the part of global finance, particularly Wall Street firms, to find new frontiers of financialization. And in this case, the debt of poor people was seen to be especially productive because the poor could be made to pay back their loans. There's a famous line in microfinance that the poor always pay back their loans. I think that's better understood as the poor can always be made to pay back their loans. So there Mm. are quite punitive and, in fact, quite gendered mechanisms of repayment that undergird microfinance, and those have been expanded and extended in the broad commercialization of microfinance that has taken place. Microfinance, I would argue, therefore, can be seen as um, a particular form of subprime lending. But there are also forms of microfinance, those that were first initiated by community organizations and non-profit organizations in places like Bangladesh that are not necessarily these commercialized forms, that are not necessarily about debt. And much of those forms of microfinance are about asset building. They're about savings. They're about the local control of finance. So one way of thinking about this is that global finance and global development institutions were able to appropriate these versions of microfinance and transform them into these highly commercialized, exploitative, subprime forms of lending. And it's then an irony that the global billionaires whose billions have emerged from this sort of exploitation and extraction are then touting microfinance as a panacea for poverty. Right. I mean, and then, so you're not telling people to close their Kiva accounts necessarily. Sure I am. Why not? Well, because those are not, at least the Kiva account, people are not trying to earn money off that, They're not trying to earn money off that, but what they are doing is contributing to the myth that you give a poor person on the other side of the world a small loan 
$20, $50, and A, it's a loan, because somehow they are not worthy of anything more than a loan, and we are through a loan teaching them something about financial discipline, which we supposedly know something about, right? Yeah. But also that that loan will transform them magically into something called an entrepreneur. And that is simply not the way in which microfinance works. The successful models of microfinance, which I briefly mentioned earlier, that come from places like Bangladesh, and I'm thinking particularly about Brock, which is perhaps the world's largest nonprofit organization, their ability to ensure that families move out of poverty has nothing to do with these small loans. It has to do with old-fashioned methods of asset building, compulsory savings, local businesses that are tied into global commodity chains in ways that are not exploitative. It has to do with village committees that build political power, especially for women. It has to do with the transformation of feudal and patriarchal relationships in the rural countryside of Bangladesh. So that Kiva loan, while well-meaning, contributes, I think, to these forms of liberal benevolence that can be deeply problematic and that are complicit, I would argue. I know that sounds harsh, that are complicit in particular viewpoints on poverty. Right. And it, it reminds me, say, in the States of the kind of uh, uh, well-meaning but almost patronizingly techno-solutionist solutions of, of universal basic income, say. Well, I, I would put universal basic income in a slightly different category. Mm. I, so what's interesting about UBI, of course, is, again, um, we have a convergence of leftist activism and right-wing ideology. And there are quite different reasons for wanting UBI. In many parts of the world, right. the debate around UBI, I'm thinking about South Africa, the debate about UBI has been much more about rights and claims, and particularly recognizing that welfare programs that are tied to the myth of um, a full-time male household earner cannot be sustained in economies with high levels of unemployment, with structural unemployment. And that, in fact, UBI or guaranteed minimum incomes have to be considered in the context of post-apartheid redistribution policies. That is a very different understanding of UBI from, say, right-wing ideologues like Murray, who simply want to dismantle welfare altogether and want to create a different relationship between state and citizen. Right. I mean, or or when when I mean, I talk about this a lot, but I, I was, uh, you know, writing in favor of UBI until I gave a talk at Uber and then heard the UBI argument really spit back to me as a justification for why they don't have to pay a living wage to their drivers. That's precisely what I mean. And That's right. So I think that these ideas can be a appropriated and turned into precisely this sort of anti-welfare argument. And yet there are also, of course, versions of UBI that are not that. And I think it's up to us to make those other versions real and robust. Right. Right. Exactly. And that, that's the trick. But 
uh, right now it feels, I mean, certainly the Twitterverse is, uh, is, is not really open to a multifaceted argument. It's hard. It's hard to hold, to hold that discussion in, in the wrong, in the wrong platform. It's everything's either, are you for or against? And it's like, well, <laughs> I'm for and against. Well, sure. But in the United States, I think we have a diminished and a diminishing sphere of public discourse. Mm. And, you know, I think, or put another way, the sphere of public discourse that we have has been taken over very successfully by the right that has over decades built a sturdy infrastructure of media organizations. I can't call them news organizations and sort of well-connected and interconnected think tanks that produce what they see to be big ideas put forward by their their version of public intellectuals. It's been a successful project. Right. And it's also, I mean, affected those of us in, in education, particularly. And, you know, I, like you, I, I teach in a, a public university and it's, it's very tricky. I have, you know, students are coming in because they want to get jobs, you know, <laughs> I understand they're coming to college to to so they can get out and 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 do better. And you know, and we have got you know corporations coming asking to privatize one department or another, and argue that oh, they're going to help students now get better jobs, and they're going to give funding to educate these first generation Americans. But it's only certain kinds of departments that get this funding. If I want to, if I'm going to try to get this funding from for humanities, do I go to Netflix or something to get <laughs> to get the funding that engineering is getting from Intel? And it's it's really hard um, to to. Uh, I feel like, and and you've you've said this too. I feel like that we professors are becoming the voice of public education rather than the people we've hired, our administrators, our boards, our provosts. You know, to argue for what public education is really for, which is not to train workers for corporations. Well, there's so much in what you've said that that is on my that has been on my mind for a while, and as you know, this very much shaped our activism at UC Berkeley oh, almost a decade ago uh, when we faced severe budget cuts, tuition hikes, and other forms of neoliberal restructuring. So. You know, one thing to think about, you know, is that universities have always been in the United States institutions of racial capitalism, public or private. I think several universities are doing their own forms of reckoning with their histories uh, that are entangled with slavery. I think land grant institutions are thinking very much about whose land we are on. So to UCLA, mm. you know, we like to think of ourselves as one of the country's most important public universities. And I'm so very proud of the work we do. And as you must have noticed, I've chosen to spend my entire academic career teaching at public universities in the UC system. But the land we are on is stolen mm. from the Tonga peoples who do not even have recognition. So it is not that this moment of commodification and commercialization um, is new to universities. But this current, there are certain distinctive aspects of this. And one of these is, of course, the changing relationship between public resources and 
public universities, while at the same time, private universities continue to enjoy huge subsidies and um, are able to sit on massive endowments for which they are not held accountable. So there's that piece of it. And I think that those of us at public universities should insist on some of that accountability. But in terms of the restructuring that we constantly face and fight, yes, I do think that students are repeatedly told that they are consumers of something called an education. And I think the college admission scandal makes this visible. Wealthy parents who think they're buying an education, and the point of that is not an education, but it's the buying of a commodity. Mm. But I also think um, that we are under constant pressure to find these private funds for, for important research and pedagogical endeavors. But I also think it's crucial to continue the battle for public resources. And we did that about a decade ago in the UC system, particularly at UC Berkeley, which in many ways felt like ground zero of that neoliberal restructuring. And there was tremendous activism by our students in particular. There was also tremendous collateral damage in terms of their careers, in terms of academic suspensions, probations, arrests. But ultimately, I think that faculty, students, and workers at UC Berkeley and more broadly in the UC system held the line. And we demonstrated to the state legislature that we will not be quiet. We will not stop fighting for public resources. So while levels of state support are not what they once were, I don't think that in California, at least, we will continue to see the, cut, the sorts of cuts that we, once, that we experienced about a decade ago. Interesting. In, in, I think it was in the New Yorker piece about those protests. There's a line where you say, uh, when you're referring to student precarity and you say, uh, we have all become students of color now. And it was interesting to me because I, I, I was thinking about it in terms of the current moment and whether someone, I feel like, could someone say that now, you know, that, that, that in a sense, we are all experiencing colonization, that we're all experiencing at least echoes of what it might have been like to be indigenous people. And I think about that in terms of, you know, the digital extraction and the, the, the colonization of the human mind or of all of us that in some sense, even, you know, white privileged Westerners are understanding what does it mean, you know, to be on the other side of the, of the you know, the, the colonial uh, uh, spread. That line was not surprisingly controversial because right-wing commentators, <laughs> of course, saw this as um, a, a set of broad claims to what they called welfare entitlements, that huh. these were all public university students who wanted to make claims akin to welfare claims. And again, I think quite appropriately, Students of color who've been fighting for a very long time for the decolonization of the university, for access to the public university, were concerned about that line. And, I'm, and as you point out, I'm not sure I would frame the argument in those ways today, because I think what Black Lives Matter has made abundantly evident is that we are not all black and brown bodies. 
and that there are very particular forms of violence that continue to be enacted on black, brown, indigenous bodies that are not widely experienced. The argument I was making at that time was about a generalized condition of economic precarity. And it was Mm. about um, the, the undermining of what had been quite sturdy forms of white entitlement. And it cut through a range of entitlements, everything from a sense of secure home ownership to access to universities and the capacity to pay for one's kids. All of that was shifting. And that was also then the potential to remake white privilege in solidarity with communities that had long faced marginalization. Those forms of solidarity undergirded the movements we tried to build somewhat unsuccessfully at UC Berkeley and across the UC system. And I think those forms of solidarity are not only tenuous, but perhaps um, they're simply not possible. It's interesting. I'm, I'm, I want to provide service to our, uh, to our listeners, you know, beyond, I mean, this has been service to me, but I keep thinking about the emails that I get from people asking about, you know, how to do their activism, how to justify what they're doing. I mean, one, one really poignant uh, part of the, of that New Yorker piece was where you sort of described some of, sometimes that you feel like a double agent, you know, that because in, in that case, you were, you were uh, both kind of part of the revolt, but helping uh, translate kind of student demands or trying to, to the, to the administration there. But I, I'm thinking a, a lot about how we're all double agents at this point, that everybody is both part, even, I mean, everybody who's, tr- who's revolting against it, everybody's both part of neoliberalism and trying to push away from it. So yes, I'm at Occupy and yes, I have an iPhone. Yes, I teach at a public university and yes, I use a car to get home and I've got my money in a TIAA CREF, you know, university professor, a retirement account that that there's a there's a balance, but but a lot of the students, particularly in a media studies program, they they graduate and they have to get a job, and they'll ask me, oh, I, my only job offer came from you know an Omnicom advertising company or from Google or from Facebook. Can I take this job and still be a social activist? I mean, and can they can they can they fight the system from within or are they just kind of fooling themselves so i often think about that very famous line by audrey lord that the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house right and i agree with that but i think the master's tools can occupy the master's house <laughs> and it's that occupation quite literally that has been an important part of my academic career i don't see myself as an activist scholar, I don't do scholar activism. I'm a scholar and theorist, unapologetically so. My terrain of activism is knowledge production. But that knowledge production takes place within what I think of as an institution of racial capitalism that is also, for me, in the case of the UC system, one of the most important means of socioeconomic transformation and mobility in the state of California. So I, for me, the, the, the idea of double agency is about thinking about and acting in and through these contradictions and thinking about how those contradictions 
are often disabling and make us cynical, but can also be a space of empowerment and can allow us to act in ways that we had not fully anticipated. So, you know, like you, many of my students go on to jobs in institutions that they see to be thoroughly compromised. But I think it is still very possible within those compromised institutions to think about change making. But it is also possible for us to think about participation in the important movements and struggles of our time that are not simply about our institutional roles. And one of the striking things for me in the United States, of course, compared to the country I grew up in, India, is the ways in which mass protest is not necessarily something we do or do very well. Um, we don't necessarily shut it all down. And part of this has to do perhaps with the hesitation of well-meaning critical thinkers to get involved in that sort of struggle, which they often see to be as struggles that they care about, but that are not theirs, or perhaps that it is not their prerogative to get involved in, that, in those struggles. And that is not, doesn't have to be the case. Right. And whether it's, you know, personal risk on the one hand, or that that sense that, oh, I'm this is another person's this is another person's fight, and it's somehow presumptuous of me to participate in it, you know, that 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 those obstacles or 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 uh, uh, hesitations really have to be dropped if we're going to forge the solidarity we need to really push this forward. And the key word is precisely solidarity. So at the Institute on Inequality and Democracy, you know, we, we're a small institute recently launched. We got started in 2016. But from the very start, we said, well, if we are going to take on sociospatial inequality in cities such as Los Angeles, and if we are going to think about building power, we've got to think about how we journey with social movements and community organizations that are on the front lines of struggle. We are not on the front lines of struggle. A research institute at a public university is not a social movement, but how we build alliance and solidarity matters. And that is a long and complicated and difficult process. It requires, as with all relationships, work on an everyday basis. And it is through that sort of careful work that I think we can begin to build up some of these structures of solidarity. And it, what that partly means is that we've got to take normative positions on some of the most difficult questions of social inequality of our day. And that's part of what, I mean, the, the work that you're doing is about. I mean, training, in some sense, training the next generation of activists or bringing, you know, or bringing rigor to their work. If you're not teaching them how to, you know, chain themselves to something exactly, but, but you know, you're, you're bringing uh, your scholarship to inform, inform their work. And, and, so you're the the Institute of in, on Inequality and Democracy is kind of partnered in a sense. So the the courses or some of the courses that you do there, like the one in on housing justice activism, that was also then sort of videotaped and offered as a course for the activists' uh, graduate school. The Institute on Inequality and Democracy, as part of its its mandate to work in solidarity with social movements, has from the very start had a program called Activist in Residence. So we wanted to, um, as I put it, turn the university inside out. We do quite a bit of our research and public scholarship in alliance 
with social movements and community organizations. And we also make available what I like to think of as sabbaticals for activists so that they can spend time at the university, do the intellectual work that they might not often get to do in the very difficult and busy work of activism. And in that process, they also get to conceptualize a new project for their movement or organization, interact with our students and so forth. So Michael White was one of our activists in residence, and he had come up with this very interesting idea of activist graduate school. And we thought this was a pedagogical experiment that we wanted to participate in. So yes, Michael and I co-taught a course on housing justice activism. The model that activist graduate school uses is that a course is taught at a university campus with university students participating in that course. The whole thing gets taped, edited, and then turned into an online course for students across the world who might be interested in that topic. And that was a really interesting course. I mean, I was looking at the at the syllabus, and you were you you know it's a course where you're having students look you know to how housing activism in the U.S. compares to global movements. But then you also have the students, I guess, as a capstone. They either they they create either a strategy briefing you know, for a sort of a high level analytic report that recommends and details a specific strategy, or they create this sort of narrative scenario, this fictional, I just love this part, the fictional futurist account detailing how activists achieved some positive social change. And I'm I'm particularly interested in that. How have you found that these sort of visionary narrative-based projects help manifest real world activist success? Well, these assignments were Micah's brainchild, um, and I actually loved the idea of these assignments and have loved reading through them. And in particular, I think the narrative account format is fascinating. So one particular student's assignment in that in that genre imagined the repeal of something called the Costa-Hawkins legislation in California. So that legislation has been the big obstacle to achieving rent control in California's cities. And there was an effort to repeal Costa-Hawkins as part of Proposition 10 last year, and that um, ballot proposition was defeated by a huge influx of money from Wall Street landlords, notably the Blackstone Group. So this particular student assignment, this was a student in public policy at UCLA, imagined a successful hashtag end Costa campaign. But as with all utopian scenarios, there was a dystopian thread that ran through it. And the dystopian thread was that we there was had been another great recession. He called it the Great Recession of 2020. And that great recession and the huge housing losses and evictions that came about through that great recession then created the impetus for massive mobilizations around rent control and thus led to the repeal of Costa Hawkins. That's nice. I mean, I I love the, I mean, I guess particularly because I'm a professor now, to think about the ways that what we do in the classroom, you know, with with intellectual work, if you will, and 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 scholarship, how it ends up actually translating, how it becomes actionable. 
but I think about that from the other end too, you know, and, and, and Micah White at the, at the in, in end of protest, and you've talked about this too, he's very concerned with how we move kind of beyond the media spectacle of something like Occupy or the kinds of talks that we might give that lead to a million tweets. You know, how do we move beyond that media spectacle to real on the ground activism, you know, from the demonstration to actual political power. You know, is that is that AOC? Is that what we're seeing? Is that is is she the way that we we transition from media spectacle to uh, uh, political power? So two thoughts on this. One, I don't know if it's so much a question of transition as it is the relationship between the media spectacle and political and social change. I don't think there's a way around the media spectacle. I think the media spectacle remains important. And AOC is a good example of the capacity to utilize that media spectacle and to utilize platforms, by the way, you know, platforms of digital enclosure like Twitter, which I use, for the purposes of social change or at least for making visible certain key issues. One of the things that came up a lot in the class that Micah and I co-taught was the relationship between what can be seen to be activism and what can be seen to be organizing. And you drew a distinction between the two. And many of our students at UCLA, our graduate students who are in that class, but more broadly are in our programs, are deeply embedded in organizing. In organizing with communities, with movements, say with the LA Tenants Union, which is a movement that inspires me greatly. And that organizing is everyday work of building relationships, of knocking on doors. And I'm very concerned about how the university and scholarship in particular, research and scholarship, can play a role in strengthening the relationship between the, the spectacular, the what is necessarily a sphere of public discourse without all of the nuance that we care about, and then sort of this everyday organizing that has been taking place in communities that have won a series of victories that are not often visible and are not often connected to the spectacular. For me, the work of the Institute, the work of the Housing Justice Course is very much about building these connections. And I think it's those connections that are needed in order to make possible a new round of social change in the United States. And a lot of it, I mean, I agree, looks much more subtle and everyday and mundane than people may think. In other words, you don't you don't necessarily, you know, get to be Aaron Brockovich or someone. Uh and you don't have to be to create real change. I I guess I wanna I wanna close with a, a an email and it's a common email I get, but I, I you know got it again this week from someone who just got a job at Google. And it's a job they need. You know, they they need to work there. Program, they got a job at Google, it's good money. And first they were asking me should they work for Google or not when knowing what Google's doing? And then how to even then move to San Francisco and live there and not be part of gentrification. And I was trying to argue to them that they can both take the job 
and move to San Francisco, but do enough kind of compensatory activity. They can be a watchdog at Google, be part of the people who protest when Google's doing something that we don't agree with. They can move to San Francisco, yet still um, uh, participate in ways to actually uh, help uh, housing inequality in that town rather than, than worsen it. I mean, do you feel, are there ways, can people, can, can, can he take the job and move to San Francisco and still be a, a kind of a net positive? Well, like you, I would not tell someone to not take a job that they need or to not move to a particular part of the country where that job takes them. And so like I would ask what they might be able to do, not only at Google, but what they might be able to do in relation to the communities most impacted by Google. One of the partner organizations for the Institute is a wonderful data collection, data analysis collective based in the Bay Area called the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. And there's so much more than a data analysis organization. They are a social movement. And they have a very handy tool now on their website. So what they do is document and map not only evictions, but the broad-scale dispossession that is underway in the Bay Area. But they have a tool whereby you can check the eviction history of the building or apartment that you're moving into to make sure that you are, in fact, not quite literally moving in through the dispossession of someone who lived there, whose rents have now been increased or who have been evicted for other reasons. So in fact, as we have done with commodities in the past, for example, trying to think about the global life of a commodity, where does my coffee come from? And thus, interventions such as fair trade, I think there's a very interesting set of moves by organizations and movements to begin to allow people moving into new neighborhoods in cities to think about the forms of gentrification and displacement that have taken place there and how they can, in fact, partly refrain from exacerbating those displacements and at least refuse to participate in the direct evictions of working class communities and families that might have resided there. So there's beginnings. I think that there are many of these opportunities. We have to be aware of them. We have to choose to participate in them. And I think that regardless of where we hold a particular job, we've got to think about what our role might be in that public sphere and in the struggle for public resources and public goods. One of the big debates in the San Francisco Bay Area is around tech companies and taxation. Mm -hmm. Do they pay their, pay their fair share? Nowhere close to their fair share. Regardless of whether or not one is an employee at Google, that is our responsibility as urban citizens to think about the ways in which corporations have to bear their fair share of taxation. In fact, what we have in most cases is just the reverse, massive subsidies to corporations, um, whether it be the Amazon scandal or now it be Hudson Yards, and how we might shift from those massive subsidies to basic levels of taxation and compensation 
that corporations have to pay for the huge profits that they are able to make and for their devastating impact on many of our cities and communities. That is the work that all of us have to do, regardless of whether we're working at UC Berkeley or UCLA or at Google. Exactly. Very well said. Well, I, I want to thank you, Professor Roy, for, uh, for the work you've done, the work you do, and uh, for continuing to uh, inspire and educate us as we uh, attempt to uh, bring some social, economic, and, and I would argue basic human justice uh, uh, to both our neighborhoods and those and those far away. Thank you for having me on the show and for these wonderful questions. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was Professor and Activist Ananya Roy. You can find out more about her work with the Institute on Inequality and Democracy and her books and other work by following the links on teamhuman.fm. You can also take her course in housing inequality online at activistgraduateschool.org, where you will find a growing curriculum for social change. If you want to support this show and get special access to some fun stuff, including signed copies of Team Human, come to teamhuman.fm and click on support. We could use it. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College, where you can apply right now for our new master's program in media and social change. Our associate producer is Josh Chaptelin. Our community manager is Michael Bass. Our virtual futurist is Luke Robert Mason. Team Human is produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.